So before I became a pastor, I was in the nonprofit sector. And before that, I was in business as a business consultant. And um, I, always, I always liked business. It always came pretty naturally to me. And I always had a knack with numbers. Like numbers just came really, really easily. And so when it became time for me to declare a major in college, I picked accounting because accounting was all about numbers. And it was just a, a, an obvious fit for me. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... but there's some people and, and they just look like accountants. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? Like there's, there's, I'm not trying to be mean, but like there's just kind of a stereotypical look. You can be like, that guy just looks like an accountant. Well, I would say that for me, like I was kind of nerdy anyway, but like I got a picture to show you guys uh, from, from high school. I just kind of had, I just kind of had that look. You know what I mean? Like I was a great fit in the accounting department at Miami University. I, I, I fit right in with all of those other guys, and I did well. And everything was going great until after my junior year of college. And at that point, after junior year, I, I spent a summer in Europe. And in Europe, man, it was just a transformative summer. And one of the things was, I'm not going to go get my hair cut. People don't even speak the same language as me. So I just let my hair go. Right? I stopped the kind of short, tight cut, and I just, I just let it all go. And, um, and I, I came back from, from that summer and I was trying to find like a great picture. And the picture that I'm showing you right now is not like the world's best picture. I'm the second from the left, but like I had, I had this Euro Afro going on and I mean, this thing was just, that's not even it in all its glory. I just, I couldn't find a picture of the Afro like fully, fully done, but I rocked that through the rest of my college experience. And I mean, I'll never forget walking back into the accountancy department like just with this, all, this huge head of hair, man. Like people were just, they didn't even say anything. They just looked at me. You know, they're just like, what the heck? I look like a complete freak in the accounting department. You know what I mean? But I didn't care. It was, it was awesome. I was loving it. And, um, and all joking aside, I, I got to the point where I was ready to do uh, my interviews with like these big uh, accounting firms looking for a consulting job. And um, so you're talking about like Deloitte and KPMG and Ernst & Young and all these folks. And I had an advisor and he said to me, he said, Derek, look, you can do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you, you walk into those interviews with that hair, you're not getting a job. They are not going to hire you, dude. You're looking like a freak. And he was right. He was totally and completely right. Because here's the deal. Those companies, we're talking billions and billions of dollars that have to be meticulously accounted for. They're not looking for some hippie-looking, laid-back, Afro-wearing guy, are they? They want a nerd. They want someone who's going to be absolutely detail-oriented with their books and with their bottom line. And so you better believe I went and got my hair cut the day before my first interview. Because I... I didn't want to be a freak. Well, speaking of freaks, today, as we continue in this series called Unlikely Heroes, and I just want to say welcome to our West Falls Church campus and those who are with us online, um, we're going to be looking at a guy who, I don't know how else to say it, he was kind of a freak. In fact, you could pretty much call this guy like the original Jesus freak. We're talking about the one and only John the Baptist. And all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about John the Baptist. And so um, I just want to just read a few verses from, from some of these accounts. Because if, in case you're not familiar with this guy, I mean, he was a wild dude. We pick it up in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 4. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came. Those, those were the days when Jesus was about to start his ministry. 
It says John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So there's our first clue. He's in the wilderness. So that's your first sign. There's something weird going on. Why is he out in the wilderness preaching? And he was saying, repent. Don't we love that word? Doesn't that just make you feel good when somebody says repent? I'm I'm totally kidding. Of course, we're going to come back to that. But he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. So he wasn't wearing the traditional clothing. He's wearing the the stuff that these Old Testament prophets would have worn. Just animal skins. It says his food was locusts and wild honey. This reminds me of like man versus wild or something. I mean, this guy was, he was crazy. He had crazy clothes. He was eating locusts and like he had a crazy diet. And then he had this crazy message. He's going around and he's saying, repent, repent. And literally, I mean, he would get into anybody's face about this. Check out what uh, Luke writes, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, 10 through 14. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, listen to this, you brood of vipers. How's that for an opening line? Now, you need to understand that in another gospel account, it talks about how within this crowd, there's all these Pharisees and Sadducees who are very much religiously, uh, they were hypocrites. And so they were saying that they were doing all this stuff in God's name, but they weren't acting like godly people in any way. So he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. I wonder if he's saying that because he didn't have a shirt and he was eating locusts. I'm just kidding. But but then he goes on and he says, look, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? John said, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So here's John the Baptist and he's going around, repent, repent, repent. And he's calling out anybody that he could get his his eyes on. And there was nobody this guy wouldn't call out. Check out who he calls out in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas. You know who this guy was? He was the ruler of all of Galilee, and he was the ruler of all of Perea. And he's calling him out because, because Herod went and married his brother's wife. And he's, he, was an, he was an evil dude. And, and so John the Baptist, he's even calling out the most powerful man in the whole region. I mean, it doesn't get any bolder, any crazier than that. John the Baptist was absolutely wild. And for this... Uh, Herod actually was like, dude, okay, fine. You're going to jail. And he actually beheaded John the Baptist. This is how John met his end. So here's the deal, man. I mean, calling people out like this, I mean, you guys know this is crazy, right? I mean, if there was someone today in the Washington, D.C. area who's going around just calling people out for all their sins and just doing all this crazy stuff like this, I mean, he'd he'd be arrested. He'd be shot. We, we can't stand people like this. This doesn't work today. This isn't how people respond religiously to anything. We know this. But this is John the Baptist, man. I mean, he, he, he's wild. 
But here's the wild thing, okay? Before Herod arrests him, check this out. Matthew 3, picking it up, verses 5 and 6. So he's been calling all these people out, and check this out. People went out to him, catch this, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So people were flocking to him. He's calling people out left and right, and they can't get enough. They're coming by the thousands to follow this guy. And not just that, they're not just coming to listen. Look at this. It says, confessing their sins. So they responded. They responded. They're like, okay, yeah, we need to do something. We need to confess. It says, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this is amazing. This would never work today, would it? People would never respond this way. But I, I believe the people then were just tired of the way things were. You know, they were ready for a change. They were tired of this religious system. They were tired of the hypocrisy they saw. They were probably tired of the hypocrisy they saw in themselves. And so when John came out and said, look, we've got we've to change our ways. We've got to turn from this way we're doing things and go a different way. They were like, yes, yes, let's do it. And they flocked to this man. He was a rock star. In fact, he was such a big deal that he got the attention of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. We look at John uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. This is, this is John, the disciple who followed Jesus. This is not John the Baptist, okay? So this is John's gospel, the follower of Jesus. And John writes, now this was John's, meaning John the Baptist. This was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who he was. So you got to understand, this is such a big deal that this has now become a disruption to the whole Jewish establishment. And the epicenter of the Jewish faith is Jerusalem. It's the temple. And the most big shot leaders are like, man, we got to figure out what the heck is going on. Who is this guy? What's he all about? So they send their underlings to go out and do some recon work and figure out who is this guy? What is happening here? we got to get a handle on it. So when they went out there, it says he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. Because you see, there was all this talk about there was going to be this Messiah, and it had been predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. There'd be a Messiah. And John the Baptist, maybe he sees them coming, and he goes, guys, I know what you're going to ask me. I'm not the Messiah. To which they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last of the Jewish prophets, was a prophet named Malachi. And that's the final book in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And in that, Malachi says that before this Messiah comes, who's going to save his people, there will be an Elijah. God will send an Elijah who will proclaim the coming Messiah. So they say, are you Elijah? It says John the Baptist said, nope, I'm not, not Elijah. So they said, are you the prophet? Because Moses had talked about this prophet who was going to come to pave the way for the coming Messiah. So they said, are you the prophet? He said, nope. So finally, they said, oh, come on, enough of this. Like, okay, you told us all these people you're not. Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So what do you do? Why are you baptizing? And you got to love this moment for John. He completely dodges this question. Okay, great political response. Why, why do you baptize? He, he just goes a totally different direction. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. And I love this line. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So picture this. John is at the height of his ministry. He's got a rock star following. And he doesn't just have people listening to him. He actually has people who are changing their lives. They are getting baptized. They're turning away from all these, this mess of stuff that they were doing. And, and they're, they're, they're going a different direction. I mean, this is amazing. He's got people who are signing up to be his followers, to be his disciples. So in the height of, of his fame and his influence with all this crowd of people, okay, as these religious leaders from Jerusalem who've been set ask him this question, he says, guys, guys, you think I'm somebody? I mean, you think I'm a big deal? You think that all this has disrupted what's happening in Jerusalem? You ain't seen nothing yet. Because there's one who's coming after me. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Two verses later, John 1.29. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Imagine this for a second. So John's up there on the banks of the Jordan River. It's just swarms of people everywhere. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, he sees Jesus. And you can imagine John points out. And what does he say? He says, look, look. Everybody's heads turn. Look at this guy. And then he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you got to remember, John the Baptist's audience was Jewish. They would have known exactly what this reference is. This lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Because you see, this was a big deal in the Jewish faith. You would actually go to the temple with a lamb, or if you couldn't afford a lamb, you'd take a different animal, and you would sacrifice that lamb. And basically, there'd be this symbolic thing where you, all the, your sins and everything you'd done wrong would be kind of put on that lamb, and then you'd sacrifice that lamb as an offering to God so that you'd be considered righteous in the eyes of God. And here he goes, he's pointing at a human being, at Jesus. And he goes, there's the Lamb of God that doesn't just take away the sin of Jewish people, but he's going to take away the sin of the whole world. And in that moment, John the Baptist, at the height of his fame and his glory and his influence and his power, he gives it all up to Jesus. He says, look, you got to go follow that guy. And in that moment, John the Baptist, you know what he recognized? It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his story. It was about something way bigger than him. It was about God's story. And he found himself in that bigger story. Some of you guys know the uh, 
named Jordan Bohannon. Uh, if you're a big sports fan, he's an Iowa University basketball player. And um, a couple of months ago, he stood at the free throw line in a college basketball game with a chance to break a 25-year-old Iowa University school record for consecutive free throws made. That record was set 25 years earlier by a guy named Chris Street. Now, Chris Street played basketball at Iowa, and he was great. Now, he wasn't great because he was like LeBron James-type athletic, though he was an All-American, and he had NBA uh, potential, for sure. He wasn't the best in the nation. He was good. He was really good. But what made Chris Street great was his heart. It was his passion for the game. This guy was the hardest working player on the court. And it wasn't just that he was his hardest working, but he just had this love for the game. He had this passion for the game. He, he gave everything he had on every single play. And not only did he have a passion for the game, but he had a passion for his teammates. He had a passion for life. And it was infectious, you guys. Chris Street was one of those players, and he was so influential that opposing coaches would talk about him. That's how, that's how good this guy was. Well, Chris Street, uh, back on January 16th, 1993, in a basketball game against uh, Duke University and a guy uh, named Christian Leitner, some of you guys remember that name, um, he stood at the free throw line and he had two foul shots to make. And if he made those two foul shots, he would set the Iowa University basketball record for consecutive free throws made. He made those two free throws, set the record. And those two free throws were the last free throws that he would ever take. Because three days later, after leaving a team meeting, he drove to go home and was hit head on by a snowplow and was killed. And on that day, his life ended, but his legacy took off. So the team, Iowa University, dedicated the rest of their season to Chris Street, and it was quite a season. At the end of that season, they decided, the university decided that this guy was just so larger than life that they had to create an award. They, they created a Chris Street Award, which is still given out to this day, to the player that exemplifies the, the enthusiasm and the spirit of Chris Street in what they do. Today, if you uh, visit Iowa University, there's only one jersey, number 40. There's only one jersey that has been retired by that university, and that is the number of Chris Street. So here Jordan Bohannon stood just a few months ago. He stood at the free throw line with a chance to break Street's record. And he took a quick glance over to the sideline where his brother was. He gave a look up to heaven, maybe. And then he shot. And he missed. And he missed pretty uncharacteristically, pretty badly. And as the ball clanged off the rim, there was a shout in the crowd, Chris Street! 25 years later, people, everyone knows this guy still. So, Bohannon was asked by a reporter after the game. He said, Chris, I mean, that shot, like, did you miss it on purpose? Because it definitely was very uncharacteristic for him. And this is all he said. He said, you know, that record, it deserves to stay in Chris's name. What Jordan Bohannon recognized, yeah, he could have gotten that 
record? He could have. And some of you are sitting there going, he should have made that shot. Chris Street would have wanted him to make that shot. And you know what? You're probably right. (laughs) The way that Chris Street played basketball, he would have wanted Jordan to make that shot. But that's not the point. The point is that Jordan Bohannon said, you know what? Yeah, I could get that record. But he reflected on this man's legacy. He reflected on the thousands and thousands of people who've been inspired, not just in how they play sports, but in how they live their lives by this guy. And he said, you know what? That record's not for me. He found himself in a bigger story. Now, it is so easy, you guys, to get caught up in our own story, isn't it? Our own recognition, our own goals, our own hopes and dreams, our own happiness. And it's not bad. Don't feel bad about that. That's, That's what it means to be human. I mean, it's human nature. We get caught up in our own story. But here's the thing. It's so easy to stay there, get caught up in our own story, and we lose sight of the bigger story, the bigger story of what God is doing. We're so focused on ourselves And here we have this God who created us and everything around us. A God who came to this earth to sacrificially show his love for us. Who invites us into this bigger story. Something way beyond ourselves. Something timeless. Something eternal. Something that will outlive and outlast us. And so I just want to encourage you today to find yourself in the bigger story. Find yourself in God's story. Whether it's, you know, you've got great things happening, you know, that, that promotion, that, you know, whatever it is, that, that goal, that dream, you're, you're doing great. Okay, how do you, how do you sit that in, in the bigger story of what God is doing, how God wants to use that? Or maybe you find yourself struggling. You're dealing with all kinds of stuff. Man, it's painful right now. Is there a bigger story around that of what God may want to do? Now, here's why it's so important, you guys. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. This is why it's so important to find ourselves in God's story. Because, and you know this, but listen. When it's about us, when it's about our story, when it's about our success or our recognition or our goals or our happiness, it's never enough, is it? Think about it. Think about this. I mean, you ever said, oh, I'll just be happy when I get this. I'll just be happy when this happens. And then guess what? It happens. Are you happy? Oh no, then there's something else and something else. If you're a goal-oriented, driven person, you set that goal, you hit that target, man, I'm gonna be, that's it when I hit this. And then you hit it, you get that promotion. And then guess what? Oh man, that was cool for a little while. And then what happens? Oh, another goal, another promotion, another milestone. It's never enough. When it's about us and our story, we're constantly left empty. It's never ultimately fulfilling and satisfying. But when we are part of God's story, when we're part of what God is doing in us and in the world, when we're part of something that's going to outlive and outlast us, oh my goodness, that is where we find ultimate purpose and meaning and significance. And you know this because you've experienced moments like that, way out beyond yourself moments that weren't anything to do with you. Those are the moments that are so gratifying. Those are the memorable moments in our lives. 
Um, I heard something cool from, uh, from Tom Wilson, who's the right wing of the Stanley Cup champion uh, Washington Capitals. <clears throat> Felt good to say that. Um, he was asked, what was it like to hoist that Stanley Cup trophy over your head? You know what he said? This is so cool. He goes, yeah. He goes, that was great, man. It was like a swirl of emotions, you know, and it was, it was great. He goes, but you know what was even better? Whoa, 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 whoa. Better? Like, you dream, if you're a hockey player, your whole life, you dream of this one moment where you get to hold the cup up. Every player gets to do it. Every player, okay? He goes, you know what was better than that moment? What? He goes, here's what was better. Seeing my teammates hold it up. Seeing them hold up that cup. That was incredible. You know why? Because in that moment... It was not about Tom Wilson. You see, it's great when it's about us, right? I mean, it's, it feels good, but it's temporary. It's fleeting. It's not, it's not fully satisfactory. But Tom Wilson, in that moment, realized that the blood and the sweat and the tears and the sacrifice that he had given to his teammates, he was part of a team and seeing their dreams fulfilled, giving himself to that bigger team, that was the moment for Tom Wilson. That was it for him. And whether he realized it or not, that's a God thing. That is a God moment. That is finding yourself in a bigger story that is beyond you. And I want to encourage you. Where do you find yourself today? Because we are all part of a bigger story of what God is doing. So whatever it is, whatever your situation, whatever your struggle, whatever your thing is right now that's on your mind, find it in a bigger story of what God is doing in you and in this world. We're going to close out our service today by celebrating communion. And the reason we're going to do that, communion team, please go ahead and, uh, and get the elements to take your places. Um, the reason that we're going to celebrate communion is because communion, check this out, guys. Communion is actually the celebration of a bigger story. It's a story that's bigger than us. Communion is the story of God coming down to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and showing us the way to live. Showing us that there's something beyond ourselves. And it's the story, the reason we take that, that bread and we take that cup is because it's actually a celebration of a sacrifice. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, yours and mine. It's a celebration of this loving sacrifice so that we would know that no matter what we've done in our lives, God loves us. God doesn't look upon all, all the mistakes and everything else and look down on us. God loves us exactly how we are because it's through faith in him and what he's done for us. So what I want to encourage you to do is to utilize this time where we have this tangible reminder of a bigger story, of a God who came down, of a God who says, I'm willing to sacrificially love you, and I want to sacrificially love this world. And so when you take this bread and you take this cup, that you would actually embody that same sacrificial love, that that would be your bigger story. So, Let's go ahead. We're going to take a few moments now. We're going to go ahead and celebrate communion. And, um, and then we will uh, take the elements together and we'll close out in a word of prayer. Let's all celebrate 
that we're part of a bigger story, something that's beyond us. That's great. That's so great. So we celebrate Jesus and his sacrifice and his example and his incredible love. As you take the bread and the cup, just invite God in this moment just to remind you and invite you into his bigger story. Let's eat and drink together. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much that it's not just about us. I know sometimes I want it to be, but I thank you that it's not because, God, that bigger story, that thing beyond us, oh, it's, it's awesome. God, we, we want to be a part of that. We want to keep our eyes on that. That's where true meaning and purpose, true significance lies. Help us, God. Help us in our very narrow, limited view here on this earth to be able to to keep our eyes on what you're doing. Keep our eyes on that bigger story, the story of your love, your redemption, your goodness. Work in us and through us to accomplish what you want. In Christ's name, amen.